We will continue our series this morning on the Gospel of Mark, and we're embedded about halfway through Mark, Mark chapter 9. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, grab it and open it up to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you can grab one from in front of you, and you can open it up to page 845. The sermon this morning is from Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through verse 41. Let's give our attention to God's good word. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty, de- mighty work in my name will able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in your word. For here we learn who you truly are and what you are like. We learn of your son and what your son has done and is doing in this world. And we learn about ourselves, who we are, and what must be done in our own lives. And as Father, as we consider your word this morning, we, we understand that we are a people prone to forget who you are and what you are like and who Jesus is and what he has done. We are a people who are, are prone to, to look in pride, a, a people prone to desire privilege and ascendancy. And so as we consider your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would, again, freshly reveal our sin to us, and that you would teach us through your word how to repent and what repentance looks like. And Father, we pray as we consider your word that you would grant us faith again, that we as a people would hear the good word and and respond and take up our crosses and deny ourselves and follow after Jesus. And Father, we cast ourselves upon your mercy this morning. We realize the task before us to be transformed into the image of Christ is something that we cannot do on our own. And so we ask for your blessed spirit. Would he work powerfully among us and in us now? 
We ask all these things. We pray all of these things in your son's good name. Amen. So if you were to uh, scan over all of redemptive history this morning, thinking back to Genesis chapter 3 and the initial promise of God to Adam and Eve after they fell into sin, moving forward into the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even moving past that into the times and acts of the apostles, when we scan all of redemptive history, we can find one common temptation to all of it. And it's this, the the profound temptation to underestimate and to misunderstand what it means to be among God's people. We could use different language this morning to bring it into our own context. The temptation to underestimate and misunderstand what it means to follow Jesus or or be Jesus' disciple. And it's for this reason that wherever you pick up your Bible and open it up, you can find dramatic calls to rightly evaluate what it means to be numbered among God's people or what it means to follow after Jesus. If you open up to your Old Testament, you will find the prophets laboring with the people of God so that they might not forget who they are and what it means to live before a holy God. We can hear Moses' voice sound forth in his preaching in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30 where he addresses the people. He says to them, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, and I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life in the length of days. We can fast forward from Moses to to Joshua, and we find Joshua doing a similar thing as Israel inherits, finally inherits the the promised land. Moses calls for this radical appraisal in their lives, or Joshua calls for this radical appraisal, and he, he addresses the people saying, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. As we hear Moses and Joshua We might have the temptation to to shake our heads and wag our fingers at the people of the Old Testament. Why would they be tempted to forget who they are? Why would they be tempted to, to forget what it means to live before a holy God? But before we do that, we have to understand that the very same logic, the very same entreaties, the very same calls are found in the New Testament as well. We can look at the ministry of Jesus. As the crowds gathered around our Lord, what did Jesus preach to them? Well, he said this to them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And as new believers struggled to maintain purity in the the pagan culture as they were engrafted into the church, the Apostle Paul reasoned with new Christians as they were tempted to forget who they are in Christ. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And Paul, as a new generation of leaders, rose up in the church, and as Paul neared his own death and he saw the the church going on without him, he gave one last battle cry. 
We find it in the book of 2 Timothy as he looks forward to the future, calling for a radical appraisal. He says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God and follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so as we consider this broad story from the book of Genesis through Moses and Joshua into the apostles, we see a, a real pattern emerge. Whether you lived with Moses or, or Joshua, whether you heard the preaching of Jesus or Paul, whether you are inquiring after Jesus for the first time this morning, or you've walked with Jesus for quite some time and there's, there's gray hair on your head, we are all faced with a real temptation. And that temptation is to underestimate and misunderstand what it means to follow after Jesus. We all face this today. As we look into the Gospel of Mark this morning, we just see how real this temptation is. Traveling and working and living and sleeping with Jesus are our 12 men, the disciples. And though the 12 had Jesus constantly before them, they could see Jesus with their eyes. They could hear Jesus with their own ears. They could actually touch Jesus with their own hands. They were constantly underestimating and misunderstanding both Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow after Jesus. We can just consider some of the key moments in this story from the Gospel of Mark. When the waves were breaking into the boat and the boat was filling with water, what were the disciples saying in their minds? What were they saying to Jesus? Well, they questioned Jesus' intentions. They cried out, Teacher, do you not care that we are, are perishing? And when Jesus came striding upon the, the water, they trembled with fear. They thought a ghost had come to them. And when Jesus revealed the divine plan hidden for ages, that the Christ must suffer and then die and then be raised from the dead, how did the disciples react? Well, Peter will have nothing to, to do with this gospel message. He, he pushes it aside, not for me, not for my Christ. And after Jesus had given the twelve authority to cast out demons, they, stood st they still stood powerless and embarrassed before an unclean spirit because of their lack of faith. And as we look into our very text this morning, what we have read this morning, we find this, this very same spirit of underestimation and misunderstanding. While the twelve travel with Jesus, they are found arguing about who is the greatest among them, who has first rank, who has preeminence. Even worse, we find the twelve stopping and hindering work being done in Jesus' very name. Now, as we consider the story that we have before us, it's easy to see the failures and the flaws of the twelve. They're right there before us. We cannot miss them. But we have to understand that Mark didn't write this story just so that we could look at the twelve and, and beat them up for their many mistakes. Mark has a greater purpose in mind. He has a, a better purpose and it's this, that we might see, that we might taste, that we might enjoy the good news of Jesus for ourselves. So in the Gospel of Mark, we find that Jesus is on a redemptive mission. And in this redemptive mission, we find that Jesus has not come to deliver those who have a, a clear bill of health. Rather, we find Jesus ministering to, to who? We find him with the sick and the blind and the lame. He has not come to shower mercy and grace on the supposed righteous, on those who supposedly have their lives together. Rather, he has come to forgive and embrace sinners. Who does Jesus eat with? Well, he dines with tax collectors and sinners. 
In fact, we can say Jesus has come for people just like the 12 disciples we meet in the Gospel of Mark. He has come for a people who are stubborn in understanding, a people who are slow to believe, a people who struggle greatly with sin. That is the sort of people that Jesus has come for. But the great question in the Gospel of Mark is, how will the Lord Jesus save these dull and slow disciples? And here we can turn from the Gospel of Mark and go back into the Old Testament And an old prophecy from Isaiah chapter 42 helps us out and answers this question. In the context of Isaiah's situation in chapter 42, the the prophet is addressing a people who have underestimated and misunderstood what it means to be among God's people. And as Isaiah looks out at the crowds he's he's preaching to, he uses specific language to describe the people of God. He looks at them and says, you are deaf and you are blind. And Isaiah does this not because these people cannot physically see with their eyes or audibly hear with their ears, but because they have turned away from the true worship of God. Because they have turned away from God, they're blind to God's ways. Because they've turned away from God, they're deaf to God's good word. But something surprising happens in the midst of this rebellion, this blindness, this deafness. We hear a redemptive promise from the mouth of God. In the midst of Isaiah's preaching, Yahweh himself shows up and he makes this promise to these sinful people. Isaiah 42 verse 16, Yahweh says, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. And what we hear in Isaiah 42, 16 is is precious good news. What do a blind and deaf people need? Well, they need someone who's going to grab them by the hand and and lead them on. They need someone who will turn their dark sight into light. They need someone who will make that treacherous and dangerous route passable so that they can pass through it with safety. What we will see this morning in in Mark chapter 9 is the very fulfillment of of Isaiah's ancient prophecy, the Lord himself, Yahweh, will come and labor to save a people from their underestimation and misunderstanding of what it means to be a disciple. And so with all of this before us this morning, we can divide up our text into two questions. And the two questions are these. What is the blindness that must be overcome in all of Jesus' disciples? This leads us to ask a second question. What will Jesus do? What will the Lord do to lead his blind disciples into salvation, into the kingdom of God? So we can start looking at our text, working through our text by asking this first question. What is the blindness that must be overcome in all of Jesus' disciples? So as we look into Mark chapter 9, at this point in the story, Jesus turns his attention from from public ministry, both the amount of his teaching before the crowds and his miraculous healings greatly decrease. And Jesus begins to do what? Well, he begins to prepare his disciples for the climax of his mission that will soon take place in Jerusalem. And in verse 31, Jesus reveals for the second time the specific content of his mission, what he is as the Christ and what he will do as the Christ. And Jesus speaks plainly and clearly in verse 31. And we will notice a pattern as we continue in the Gospel of Mark. The closer that Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the more plain, the more bold, the more earnest Jesus is with his disciples. And so Jesus speaks to his men in verse 31 saying, 
The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And though Jesus speaks very clearly to his disciples in verse 31, we we move down to verse 32, and we hear these troubling words about Jesus' disciples. Mark records, But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And as we consider verse 32, in one sense we are are prepared for this failure on the part of the disciples. They have failed in understanding before. We can remember back to Mark chapter 4 when Jesus began speaking in parables. He told the parable of the sower and the disciples were confused. They didn't understand it until Jesus had to explain it to them privately. And we can remember back to when Jesus multiplied the, the loaves and walked on water. How did the disciples understand these signs? What did they do with them? Well, we can say they didn't understand them. They didn't get them. They were left without understanding. But in another sense, what we find in verse 32 is an unprecedented failure. What makes this scene so troubling is that Jesus is communicating with his disciples with plain and clear language. Jesus does not speak in verse 31 with riddles or parables. He does not deal with them according to symbols or figures or types. He does not use obtuse language. He does not quote an obscure passage from the Old Testament. Rather, he uses straightforward, plain speech. He places the truth of his identity right before them and what he will do as the Messiah right before them. He says to them, they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. And even with this plain, direct speech, these men cannot grasp hold of Jesus. They cannot understand. They cannot grasp the gospel. And so in light of this misunderstanding, we have to ask, well, well, what is it that keeps these men from understanding such clear and straightforward language? What keeps them from believing and treasuring and embracing and taking in Jesus' words as, as good and precious news? And as we look at these men, the answer lies not in their cognitive abilities. Surely as they heard Jesus, they could understand the grammar of his sentence. Surely they could understand the vocabulary of Jesus' sentences. They did not need to get out their, their dictionaries. Rather, what we find is that the problem is deeper. It's troubling. We can go back to Isaiah 42 and we can borrow Isaiah's language. We can say that these men are spiritually blind to God and his ways. But it's here that we need to press in. We have to ask a series of questions. Well, what exactly is it that keeps the disciples from seeing and understanding the message of the gospel? Or we could ask, what does their their blindness actually consist of? Even more, we can ask, applying this to ourselves, how can we know if we are marked by the same heart and the same temptation has overcome us and we are blind to God and his gospel and his son? So we need to find some answers, and we only can find them in the text before us. And surprisingly, what keeps the disciples from seeing Jesus is found in the very mundane matters of life and ministry. And Mark provides us with two revealing stories that makes clear what spiritual blindness is. And so we find the first story in a normal conversation. So the disciples are on a journey with Jesus and they arrive, they finish their journey in Capernaum and they, and they settle into the house and Jesus comes to his men and he asks them a question. Verse 33, what were you discussing on the way? And in this case, Jesus is not actually looking for 
in answer. The twelve don't actually need to say the word. They have been caught in their foolishness. We can imagine their faces turning red with embarrassment and, and guilt creeping in upon their souls, for Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about on the way. Who was the greatest among them? Who had the first place? As we consider the disciples' argument along the way as they were traveling, it doesn't take too much work to determine the occasion for this conversation. Just in the previous scene, the nine disciples who did not go up with Jesus on the mountain were embarrassed before the crowd and the scribes because they could not cast out this spirit. And surely as they were traveling with Jesus, the twelve reunited. This provided an irresistible occasion for Peter, James, or John who were on top of the mountain with Jesus. Surely a, a conversation could have happened like this from Peter, James, or John. Guys, if I was there, that demon would have been long gone. Guys, if, if I would have been there, Jesus would not have been disappointed in us. If I was there, we would not have been ridiculed by the scribes for our impotence. And it's here when we start thinking about this conversation, this, this argument that the disciples were having about who the greatest was, that we find the reason why these men could not understand Jesus or embrace his gospel with gladness. At a very basic level, these men thought that the gospel was a message that gained them privilege and honor above others. Even more, they thought discipleship was an avenue to gain ascendancy above others. We can just see it in their conversation, lurking in their deeds, in their ministry, was an eye of comparison and competition. Oh, have I finally outdone, have I finally outgained my brother or sister? Have I finally outstripped them and shown my own uniqueness and glory? And so because these men were too busy jockeying for positions of privilege and honor, because their hearts were were set upon making an argument for their own greatness, they could not rejoice in the fact that Jesus was on a mission of humble service, to suffer and die and rise again. They could not embrace the message that Jesus was going to give his life as a ransom for many. They craved exaltation, not humiliation. They craved glory, not the shameful cross. So as we consider this first story, it gives way to a second story. And so what happens when you're zealously concerned about who is the greatest? Well, you begin to eye others with suspicion. They're not your friend, they're your foe. What happens when you're seeking the first place for yourself? Well, envy begins to fill your heart. And we find this taking place in in the second story that Mark gives us in verse 38. John comes to Jesus, and we, we eavesdrop on this conversation. Verse 38, Mark records, And John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And John's heart, and I think the, the, the heart of the disciples, is revealed in this question, in this text. The disciples, instead of rejoicing that Jesus' salvation can be experienced more widely in Israel, instead of rejoicing the fact that demons were defeated in Jesus' name, instead of rejoicing that others, even another man, was placing faith in Christ, what did they do? Well, they worked to stop this man in his ministry. They worked to hinder him. And even more troubling than the actions of the disciples was their rationale for why they did what they did. We'd expect John to to come and say to Jesus, well, Jesus, we tried to stop this man because he was not following you. 
Or Jesus, we try to stop this man because he was not obedient to your teaching. Or Jesus, we try to stop this man because he was not obedient to your, your ethics or your morality. But instead, what do we hear from the mouth of John? Well, he says to Jesus, we try to stop him because he was not following us. What do we find here? Well, these men could not grasp a hold of the gospel because they were blinded by a desire for platform. What these men really craved was not the salvation of sinners, but the consolidation of their own power. They desired not the defeat of Satan and his demons, but the building of their own exclusive platform. They desired not the good of Israel, not the good of their neighbors, but holding on to their own privileged status of power. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. So brothers and sisters, as we look at these two portraits, these two stories, how can we know that these men were blind to the gospel, that they misunderstood, that they misapplied the nature of discipleship to themselves? Well, the answer is simple. We can just look at their actions. We can look at how they treated each other. We can look at how they talked to each other. We can look at how they ministered to those who they were called to minister to. We can look at how they treated those outside of their own tribe. What we see in the disciples so far is a group of men who have yet to deny themselves and to take up their crosses and to follow closely behind Jesus. Even more, we must see that the very behavior of the disciples in these two stories betray the very core of the gospel. The message of a humble servant who gives his life as a ransom for many, a humble servant who, who suffers and dies and then raised, is raised from the dead. As we think about these two stories before us, we need to apply them to our, ourselves. These have been written for our own instruction, and we can apply this very logic to ourselves. How can we know if we really get the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can we know if this message of salvation has really sunk deep down into our hearts, if we really treasure the death and resurrection of Jesus, if we really get what it means to follow after Christ and embrace him for all that he is? And the answer will be evidenced in the mundane and common areas of our lives. The answer will be found in how we handle the power that God has given to each one of us. Will we use that power to, to gain more power, to accumulate power for ourselves, or will we use it to lay down our lives to serve others? It will be revealed in how we steward the gifts that God has given to each one of us. Will we use God-given gifts to amplify, to, to magnify our own selves? Or will we use them to, to build up the body of Christ? It will be revealed in how we think and compare ourselves with others. It will be revealed on, on the thoughts that, that circulate through our minds. Will we be a people who operate with humility? Or will we be a people who operate with the ostentatiousness of pride? It will be revealed in how we speak of others. It will be revealed in our conversations day to day with our wives and our children and our co-workers and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Will we operate from envy? Or will we operate with a thankful heart? And this is, the indeed, this is the challenge and the call of discipleship. And Jesus calls to us this morning through these, these two stories. Are you blind to me in my ways? Has your vision become clouded by your own self and your own desires of greatness? So this is where we need to turn back to the text. So going back to the text, so here are the 12 disciples. And after these two stories, we can firmly say this. These are men who are stuck in their sin. 
These are men who misunderstood and underestimated what it means to follow after Jesus, what it means to belong to Christ. And as the Spirit has been wielding his good word this morning, we have come to see by God's grace that we're not actually that much different than the disciples if we take an honest assessment of our own hearts. We too are a people who who are stuck in our sins. We too are a people who have underestimated and misunderstood what it means to follow after Jesus. And so this is where we need to turn to our second question. What will this Jesus do to lead his blind disciples into salvation? How will he free his disciples from this, this temptation, this sin? And we have to understand that these men, as we look to ourselves, need a particular salvation. If the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus was simply a a matter of theological error, Jesus could have simply given them a theological lesson. He could have pulled these men aside and shown them the intricacies of penal substitutionary atonement. He could have written for them a well-written systematic theology. That would have sufficed. If their misunderstanding was due to their poor understanding of scriptures, Jesus could have pulled these men aside and walked them through the Old Testament once again. He could have brought them again to the synagogue where they could have heard the scribes and the rabbis preaching the Old Testament scriptures. But what we have seen is that these men desire privilege and platform. Their hearts are full of envy and pride. What these men need aren't theologies. They need transformed hearts. They need renewed desires. They need the gospel of the crucified Christ implanted upon their wills and their desires. They need what Jesus says. If anyone would be first of all, he must be last of all and servant of all. So we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 42 as we look into our text. Jesus is the great physician, and he takes aim at our hearts this morning. He picks up his scalpel in the, world, in the, in the word to dig out our pride and envy. He cuts away at our desire for, for preeminence and ascendancy, and he does this needed redemptive work. He does this heart surgery by telling us two parables. It's as if Jesus comes to us this morning and he says, you want to put to death pride? You want to put... To death, the desire for platform and preeminence and ascendancy. Well, you need to eat these two parables and you need to get them down into your heart. And so we find Jesus' first parable in verses 36 and 37. Mark tells us, And Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So as we look at verses 36 and 37, they seem a bit disjointed from the context of what is going on. What does hugging a child have to do with desire for privilege? Even more, what does receiving a child have to do with receiving Jesus? Even more, receiving his Father and the glorious kingdom of the Father. But if we look closely into this text, and if we are to place ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, Jesus' actions, Jesus' words would have been disturbing. Perhaps they would have been even provoking to these men. Because in the ancient world, children were not valued as they are today. If you go back to the ancient world, you're not going to find any slogan in the ancient times, children are our future. You will not find any politicians campaigning for, for the sake of children. You're not going to find public policies designed to spend millions of dollars on children. Rather, in the ancient world, children were the lowest on the social ladder. They were on the lowest rung. They were not valued. And so when we look closely at Jesus' words, they should jolt us. 
Jesus doesn't wrap his arms around a powerful king or a man with deep pockets. Rather, he embraces a child. He wraps his arms around a child. And what a powerful lesson Jesus puts before us. Jesus identifies himself with a poor, weak child. He identifies himself with someone who cannot help his cause, with someone who cannot make his name famous, with someone who can offer no tactical support for his mission. This child cannot offer any help. And after embracing this child, Jesus looks at his disciples and he, he begins to press this point home into them. What does it practically look like to embrace the gospel? What does it practically look like to welcome Jesus into our lives and follow after him? Well, Jesus explains in verse 37, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who, who sent me. We have to be clear here. Jesus is not calling for orphan care. Orphan care is good, but that is not Jesus' point here. Rather, Jesus is radically upending the sinful cravings in our hearts. Jesus wants us to see that receiving him and his gospel is like receiving a child in the ancient world. Jesus and his gospel will not bring us any gain in any worldly sense. Receiving Jesus is not about gaining rights or privileges for ourselves. Following Jesus will not gain us any ascendancy over each other. Discipleship is not about a a movement up the social ladder in rank and prestige, but is a a radical moving down the ladder to shame. And through this parable, Jesus is calling us to prize the shame of the cross. He calls us this morning to, to treasure humility and service. What we see in this parable is that Jesus embraces the lowest, and then he preaches to us and he says, this is what it looks like to embrace me and the gospel. You are grabbing hold of an armful of shame. We find a second parable. Jesus continues to work on our heart. Verse 41, Mark records these words of Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So we need to remember the context of what's going on here. John and, his disi- John and the disciples seek to stop an outsider from casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they, they do this because it threatens their own exclusive platform. It weakens their own consolidated power. It tarnishes their own unique glory. But Jesus, again, in this short and pithy parable, upends our worldly desires. And we have to recognize the mundane nature of Jesus' words. Who gets a, par- who gets a reward in this parable? Who gets blessing in this parable? Well, it's not the one who casts out demons. It's not the one who does mighty works before the crowds, putting them in awe and amazement. Rather, it is the one who gives a cup of water to a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus' words here are a wet blanket to us who who seek to build a a platform, for those who seek the praise of man, for those who, who seek a following. We have to press this into our hearts. Who does Jesus delight in? Even more, what kind of actions does Jesus delight in? Well, he loves the humble servant who cares for others in his name. Even more, he delights in the action that is mundane and boring. And we must see that Jesus' parable undoes our pretensions of what, what is great and what is praiseworthy. Jesus smashes our desire to build a platform for ourselves. We have to push this into our heart. What is it that Jesus delights in? Well, it takes no special skill to give someone a cup of cold water. 
It takes no spiritual gifting to give someone a cup of water. It takes no specialized training to give someone a cup of water. No paper, no news report, no TV station will cover the simple and mundane work. But Jesus teaches his disciples who love pride, who love platform, this is what the kingdom of God is all about. Jesus desires that we would have hearts bent on humble service to Christ. That we would simply desire to serve each other. And so, brothers and sisters, as we take a step back from these parables that Jesus gives to us, we find that we don't really gain any new information about the kingdom of God in these parables. The truths that we find in these parables have been spoken clearly already in the gospel of Mark. We just look at Jesus' preaching of the gospel and we find them plainly and clearly. Rather, Jesus gives these parables so that we could tangibly see what it looks like for ourselves to live in the kingdom of God. So we could tangibly see what it looks like to embrace and treasure the gospel for ourselves so that we could see what it looks like to to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses and to follow after Jesus, the suffering servant. And even more, Jesus gives us these parables so that they would burrow deep down into our hearts and that they would actually change what we love and what we desire and what we seek for. In this text, we see that Jesus loves the weak and the powerless. And Jesus comes to us this morning and he asks, where have you set your hearts? We see that Jesus loves the mundane and secret work of humility. And Jesus asks us this morning, what does your heart yearn for? Jesus goes to the cross in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what do your hands grasp for? The Lord Jesus Christ takes on humiliation willingly. What do you seek to crown your head with? Jesus embraces shame. What do you seek to embrace? Jesus loves humble service and he gives his life for service. What do you love and what do you seek? What do you crave for in your heart? As God's people, as brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus comes to us and he says, repent and believe in the gospel. He calls us to deny ourselves. He calls us to take up the cross and to follow after him. So let's do that now as we pray. Father, we do give thanks for your word. It is good. It is needed balm for our sin-sick souls. We again confess our sins. We pray that these redemptive parables would burrow deep down into our hearts and change what we actually love, what we desire, what we grasp for. That we might grasp for cross. That we might grasp for shame. That we might follow Christ Jesus willingly and wholly. Father, we pray, bless this word to our souls. Amen.